Hey folks, just a reminder that we are right now in the midst of our year-end giving campaign. To give to our work and partner with us in our task of renewing the church, there's a link in the show notes. Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our series in walking through James Jordan's book, Through New Eyes, and here the guys will be discussing the chapter on rocks and gems. As always, we do invite you to take a look at our links in the show notes. Specifically, we wanted to let you know this week about our new podcast, The Civitas Podcast. This is a podcast hosted by Dr. James Wood and Dr. Peter Lightheart. It will come out once a month, and it will be exploring political theology and post-liberalism. You can now find it on all major streaming platforms, and there's also a link in the show notes for you. As always, we want to thank you so much for taking the time to listen, and we hope that you enjoy this conversation. And here are Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, James B. John, and Jeff Myers discussing Through New Eyes. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm here today with Jeff Myers, Alistair Roberts, and James B. John. Brian Motes, as usual, is recording for us and will be editing and smoothing over everything for you, our listening audience. Uh, happy Advents. We hope that this season of anticipation, this season of reflecting on Jesus' past comings and his future final coming uh, is edifying, filled with joy as we prepare for the Christmas season. We've been going through a series of podcasts on James Jordan's books, Through New Eyes. Uh, we've just been going through chapter by chapter, and we're in a section of the book that's describing what he calls the furniture of the world. He begins the book by talking about symbolism and a kind of theology of symbolism, a theory of symbolism. And then he moves into a large scale, a macrocosmic portrait of the world as a manifestation of the glory of God, as the imprint of God's heavenly dwelling place, that being imprinted on earth. And then in the section that we're, that we're dealing with currently, the furniture of the world, he's looking at specific things in the world and how the Bible characterizes those things and how those things uh, both symbolize and reveal God and also how uh, they God has created a network of symbols. That's the term that we used, I think, last in the last episode, a network of symbols where things uh, reflect on each other so we can learn about, for example, in the last episode, we talked about the heavenly lights. We can learn about the character of heavenly lights, the sun, moon, and stars by reflecting on rulers. Uh, because rulers are symbolized by sun, moon, and stars. But we can also learn about rulers and political authority by thinking about the sun, moon, and stars. The the two realities are mutually illuminating, uh, and the whole world is designed like that. So everything sheds light on everything else, and the Bible provides the key for us. image that Calvin used is that the, the Bible provides a set of spectacles for us to see God's revelation and creation rightly. God's revelation and creation is there. His eternal power and divine nature is clearly seen in what he has made. That's objectively real, and it's impossible for that not to be real. Uh, God has created a world that necessarily manifests his character, and yet in our sin, uh, we resist that, we close our eyes to it, we're ignorant, we need we need help, we need the spectacles of Scripture in order to clarify and see what's, uh, what, uh, what's truly in front of us. Uh, and that's what the book is generally doing, and it's looking at the various specific uh, parts of the parts of the creation, the heavenly lights in the last episode we talked about 
this episode, we're talking about rocks. We're talking about rocks, gold, and gemstones. I'll just begin with this observation. One of, one of, the, one of the fruitful things I found in this book and Jim, Jim Jordan's work more generally uh, is how expansive the expansiveness of uh, a Christian reflection, the expansiveness of Christian theology. When you think of writing a book of Christian theology, you might think about writing a prolegomena. You want to write a, a methodological treatise, something about how you're going about your theological work. You want to have a section on the doctrine of God. You want to have a section on creation. You want to have a section on covenants and so on. You're hitting major themes of Scripture, but there's a lot of specific things in Scripture that are theologically weighty that are missed when you use those kind of large, somewhat abstracted categories. And what Jim encourages us to do is to think through like a, a theology of um, heavenly, heavenly lights. What's the theological import of a world that's governed by uh, lights from heaven? Or in this case, what's the theological import of gemstones? Why did God create a world where gold exists? And what is gold intended to be and do? Uh, one of the things it's doing, as always, is manifesting God, and that's one of the things that uh, this chapter highlights, is that God himself is a rock. That's explicit in, in Scripture. It's repeated a number of times in Deuteronomy 32, the Song of Moses, God is our rock. That's the background for a number of incidents in Israel's wanderings in the wilderness. God is the rock who provides water in the wilderness. God is the rock who is the shade in the heat of the day. Uh, God is the rock who provides everything that they that they need. He's the rock of stability. So the uh, rocks in some way manifest the character of God, the stability of God, the strength of God, and other features of God's character. But then because, because rocks reveal God, they also reveal something about us being the images of God. And rocks also reveal something about the character of the world uh, and vice versa. All of these things, again, are mutually illuminating. And so we can, we can kind of use rocks as a, as a lens through which to look at the whole of reality. And what, what does, what does the world look like when we think about it in terms of gold, gems, and rocks? One of the things to think about here is the way in which the approach that Jim puts forward more generally within this book is suggesting that there is a creational, divinely intended basis for what we do in poetic metaphor. When we think about metaphors, we're constantly drawing associations between eyes and lights, between pools and some different sort of thing. If we're reading something like the Book of Song of Songs, there are this constant um, selection of metaphors that kind of stretch the metaphorical potential to almost breaking point. But within that tension, we see some connection between things in the world, which I think, according to this creational vision, suggests a real connection. There's a sort of choreography or a sort of musicality to the world whereby things are not just arbitrarily related. It's not just that they're, oh, look, they're like each other in some way. No, there's some divine intention in the way that these things are connected. The Lord has made the world in order to reveal himself and also to reveal ourselves to ourselves. And so we have the connections between human beings and animals or between um, rulers. And we can think about the ruler and the tree or the ruler and the star. And all of these sorts of connections are given to us within the world. We pick up on them with poetic metaphor, but there is something deep and creational and of the very existence and essence of the world that is being disclosed in this. Yeah, Alistair and Peter, that's exactly right. I want to just maybe emphasize that in a little different way. It's one of the things I've uh, gained from Jim's teaching and also from the book. 
is that, uh, yes, these are inbuilt. It's inbuilt in us and inbuilt in creation by God. Um, it's something he has done. It is not our projecting onto an unknown God, um, metaphors, images, um, anthropomorphisms either, even, or we might say in, in case of this um, chapter, uh, petromorphisms. Uh, this is not uh, something that we've concocted, that we've come up with, you know, that we, and this is the problem with a lot of, of uh, anti-Christian or even sub-Christian kind of academic treatment of these kinds of things. Oh, well, you know, God is basically a dark, unknown God, but we project upon this uh, blank slate, these, these um, or this, this blank, uh, unknowable God, these particular images, and, and uh, whether it's the strength of a rock or, or uh, the brightness and glory of a star. No, 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 no. The, the, this is what God has uh, built into his creation, and he has also built us to connect with those things in his creation. And I, th I think that's extremely important, especially in our day and age when we tend to undo. Now, of course, there's limitations on all these connections that God has given us. He's creator. We're, we're created rocks. He's not a rock in any literal sense, but he's created rocks for us to contemplate his strength, his, his, uh, his durability, uh, durability of his promises, and and so on, um, and that's his doing. That's not our uh, imagination. Yeah, in that sense, there does seem to be something uh, quite fundamental about uh, the subject matter of, of this particular book of, of through new eyes. Insofar as talking about say covenants is is fine, but these aren't things that God directly likens himself to god doesn't say that he's like a covenant um whereas these things you know, rocks uh, fine gold the sun light etc these are these are things that god uh, directly compares himself to and that does therefore seem seem to be like a, a primacy to um the subject matter of this book that it, it is showing us fundamentally what what god is like yeah, just to reinforce one one of the points that Jeff was making, uh, again, what we have in the in this uh, way of viewing the world is an is in the interplay between the the creative properties of things and the, the way that they're described and used in the scriptures. So uh, Jim is constantly moving back and forth between those. What is it that makes gemstones attractive to us? Um, he talks about uh, gemstones as a, a kind of frozen rainbow. It's it's frozen light. It's a, a stone that has captured light somehow inside it and uh, refracts and, and uh, the light makes a, a rainbow of colors. If, you, if you're looking through a diamond, you have this, uh, this multiple color that's, uh, that sh the light is shining through the stone. So that's, that's, that's just everyone sees that when they look at gemstones and they are fascinated by that. But the reason that draws us is because God has created them to have those properties. And uh, those properties are manifestations of the glory of God. God is a rock. God is uh, is like a gemstone because he's a God who manifests and is filled with glory. So again, there's uh, it's not as if symbolism is pursued at the expense of the creative properties of things, but the two are are working and working in tandem. That's that's so true. My wife, Chris, is a gemologist, 
And this chapter was helpful for her, you know, years ago when she was uh, <clears throat> studying to for her gemology certification. Because, and she all she often says this: how everybody responds to a glorious gemstone, and those that are inglorious are not attractive, are not interesting to people. So, of course, diamonds and bright rubies and and other kinds of stones are attractive. I'm I'm, I'm thinking of this passage on page 76, where Jim says, it's because gemstones so pointedly reflect God's glory that we regard them as beautiful. It is written on our heart, on the heart of man, to appreciate glory, and it takes a great act of the will to pervert this attraction. We delight in a beautiful sunset, the sound of rushing water, and in gemstones, because each of these images, because each of these images, the very glory of God himself is in it. Yeah. Um, interestingly, I'm, my my undergrad degree is in uh, I'm a Bachelor of Science in Geology, but my interest in rocks was not about their glory or beauty, but it was in uh, geological history and interest in evolutionary science and all that. But my wife is much closer to God than I am. Uh, and so <laughs> there's that. <laughs> I wonder if I could kind of mention a, a what, what would you call it? Like just a general concern, which I have in some of the uses of symbolism, which I've seen. And um, I'm, I'm probably thinking more of books, which I think have been influenced by um, what Jim is doing rather than things of Jim's, which I've read directly. But I do think that when we're dealing with the kind of Bible's use of symbols, that there is a kind of danger, a methodological problem that everything becomes a symbol of Israel if we're not kind of too um, choosy or if we're not specific enough about what we're looking for when we're saying this is a symbol of of some 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 other thing and i mean i think that methodological issue arises just from the kind of nature of of scripture i mean most of the old testament is about the bible and most of prophetic literature uh, sorry most of the old testament is about um israel and most of the subject of prophecy is about israel and if you only need kind of one prophetic reference to israel as a tree a rock a star a bird a thorn whatever in order to make the connection ah this is israel then pretty soon everything starts becoming in in israel and everything is a reference of israel's rise or fall or destruction or resurrection or or, or whatever and um i i just wanted to sort of put that out there as a as a a possible methodological issue with, with some of this stuff that we're talking about I think one of the ways in which that danger can be genuine danger can be counteracted is by taking on board Jim's point about the fact that symbolism is not code. And so when you're thinking about a star or if you're thinking about a rock or if you're thinking about a tree, they have very different connotations. They can be referring to the same thing or the same um, person, but yet they bring different connotations into play. So we can think about the imagery that is used of the ruler as a star 
as someone who rises at a particular point and brings light, throws things um, as they exercise judgment into sharp relief. Things are seen for what they are as the sun rises or as the star rises. There is an orientation that can happen as a result of that. But if you're thinking about a tree, a tree is something that reaches up, joins heaven and earth. There's the spreading out of the branches beneath which people can take rest and be sheltered. And it's a different set of connotations. So if you're saying, um, if you're approaching it as code, the tree is a symbol for a great emperor. The star is a symbol for a great emperor. Therefore, the tree and the star are referring to exactly the same thing. They maybe have the same referent, but they have completely different sets of connotations. And when we're reading scripture, symbolically, we're constantly having these connotations pushing our attention in particular directions. So if you're thinking about the king as a star, there are a different set of um, ideas that will come to your mind, a different way in which you'll be paying attention to the king than if you're thinking about the king as a tree. The tree is focused upon what grows up from the roots, for instance, whereas the star is in the heavens. It has risen there, and it is something that is an, part of the interplay between darkness and light, and that larger world within which these symbols operate, and the greater um, realm of connotations and the networks of associations that they have will help us to treat them responsibly and not just treat them as a code. Yeah, even with what we're talking about today, rocks and gemstones, there's a multivalent significance to them as well. It's not just a, a tit-for-tat code. Um, so a rock, a gemstone, uh, a beautiful fiery gemstone refers not just to God, but also to, to people, to men. So humans are like gemstones and they have to be refined. They have to be, uh, the dross has to be uh, knocked off and they have to be cut and made beautiful. And gemstones can also refer to tribes. We've got Jim talking about the uh, stones on the ephod of the high priest as memorial stones when he goes into the tabernacle or the temple. You have the rainbow being composed of, of all of these multicolored stones, if you will, uh, at, around God's throne. So that's also image of human community or glorified humanity. Um, so each of these, each of these symbols, each of these, uh, items, these created items can have a variety of applications, interpretations, depending on the context. And that has to be kept in mind. It's not just this equals that. It's this equals, well, this this can mean many things because I, I, I wonder sometimes too um, if that also just reflects, it is a created reflection of God's complexity, of God God's own richness, so that the things he creates uh, are also have its their own kind of created richness to them, uh, use created use created uh, meaning created uh, reflection of his his uh, glorious being. I think the connection with the rainbow is significant. Um, Jim slips from going talking about gemstones and the different colors of gemstones to talking about the rainbow, and you've got a series of connections there. The original rainbow, of course, in the in the cloud 
that is set in the sky after the flood as a sign of a covenant. It's a reminder to God. It's a memorial to God that he will not destroy the earth again in a flood. But then, then the rainbow reappears in different guises. Uh, as a rainbow, it appears in the cloud in Ezekiel. It appears around the head of uh, the angel in, in Revelation. Uh, and so, and, and particularly, it, the rainbow around the head suggests that the rainbow is the lens through which God looks at the world. So, uh, because God is light and because God is surrounded by a cloud of glory, the natural phenomenon would be that he's constantly within a rainbow environment. And so, it's not as if the rainbow appears on occasion as it does to us, and God is remembered, uh, God is reminded of his covenant. It's a continuous reminder, a memorial. But then you have those same, that kind of change of register from the rainbow in the sky to the rainbow in uh, around the head of the head of the angel in, in Revelation, uh, to various combinations of gemstones, as Jeff mentioned on the on the breastpiece of the high priest, or then the gemstones that surround the priestly city of Jerusalem uh, in Revelation twenty one and twenty two, uh, Revelation twenty one especially have the gemstones, and so you have. Um, this natural phenomenon of uh, of the rainbow, which already has this theological significance as a memorial to God of his covenant promise, uh, then that's uh, registered in different forms in in the in the in the collections, again, collections of different colored gemstones. I think it's interesting too, where uh, to to note where gold and gemstones first appear in in the Bible. And that's in Genesis two when uh, the author is, describing the progress or the the outflow of the rivers going out from uh, going out from Eden and then flow through the Garden of Eden uh, and the first uh, river that goes out from the garden is named Pishon and Genesis 2 11 and 12 says it flows around the whole land of Havilah where there's gold and the gold of that land is good the bdellium and the onyx stone are there are also there so gold bdellium and onyx, Bdellium is a gemstone, but it's uh, hard to, it's only mentioned a couple of times in the Bible, so it's hard to identify exactly what it is. It's uh, manna as compared to bdellium. The onyx stones become eventually become part of the high priestly garments of glory and beauty. They have onyx stones that are engraven with the names of the tribes on their shoulders, and they're onyx stones in other places in the tabernacle furnishings. So it's interesting that you have this distinction between Eden, the place of the garden, the place where man is initially initially placed, and this other named land, Havilah, which is the place where there are precious gems and gold. They're not in the same place. So, there's a, a couple of different implications of that. One is that Adam, if Adam is going to glorify and adorn Eden, uh, if he's going to furnish Eden with gold, he's going to have to go out of Eden and bring back the gold. He's going to have to, he's going to, have to venture out into the world. And you also have this phenomenon built into the original situation of creation, where you don't have the same resources in every part of the original world. You think a perfect world, surely God would have trees, as there are in Eden, and also gold, and also gemstones. They'd all be in the same place. That would be a perfect world in our vision. But the world that God created already has these this kind of division of labor and division of resources that's built into it. That gets picked up in various other places. I mean, the, the, the most prominent, obvious place is in uh, in Exodus, where the reconstituted garden of the tabernacle is built from gold and onyx and silver and other gemstones that come from Egypt. These are not resources that are natural to 
Canaan. These are these are resources that come from Egypt, and as Israel gains these resources by plundering Egypt. We've discussed the metals, for instance, in the Metal Man in the dream of Nebuchadnezzar and the way in which there's also similarity with the tabernacle there, where you have on the first day the gold items, then on the second day of the cycle you have the silver for the census and then also for various of the posts of the tabernacle structure. And then on the third day you have the bronze sea and the bronze altar. There is this movement down through the body of the tabernacle in a way that's similar to the movement down through the body of the great image in chapter two of Daniel. And then in the story of in the book of Revelation, we have the gathering in on, of all of these riches that were in the surrounding lands, as it were, and also the sea. So there's a corresponding treasure of the sea, which is the stone of the sea is the pearl, which um, forms the gates of the city of the New Jerusalem. And that larger structure can also be seen in the um, tabernacle. There's the larger structure, but then there's also the way in which the man within it is clothed with the world as the high priest. And so that um, human being in that world, one has gone out into the world, taken the riches of the world and brought them in to dress the garden. But also man, as he's gone out into the world, has cosmified himself. He's become the world man that gathers all of these parts of the world and is dressed and clothed with them with their glory. And we can see something of this in the way that we'll see in a few months' time, a, a great coronation ceremony, which is like the rising of a, a star. We measure time in part by the kings and queens that we have. So we talk about the Elizabethan age or the Victorian age or the Tudor period. And we have in a coronation, a sort of glorious event, which is connected with these sorts of symbolism. So we have a metal thing placed upon a head with great gemstones within it. The gold and the weightiness of what's taking place corresponds with the actual physical object that's placed upon the head of the king. Now, we have something similar in a, a wedding. There is a diamond ring that's used for an engagement, for instance, or we might think about the way in which gold and its preciousness represent something of the union. In all of these ways, these symbols are still part of us, even if we don't fully register them in the way that we should do as creation, as creatures within the creation that is just chock full of this symbolism. Maybe we just need to open up to the sort of symbolism that we see in a book like Song of Songs, where there's just a riotous symbolism. And I think you've commented upon this, Peter, that as the couple are opened up to each other, they go out into the world and the whole world is opened up to them in the symbolism of their love. And I think in the same way as we relate to God, there is this sense of the whole world opening up to us. We can think about great events of divine deliverance and the way in which all these different elements of the cosmos come into play. And think about the rock in the wilderness and then the, the cloud that follows them, the sea that's opened up before them, the bread that rains down upon them. All of these material things 
that sum up something of the meaning and encapsulate something of the meaning of the event of deliverance more generally. So just as there's a decreation, there's a recreation. And these symbols attend so many of the great events of God's deliverance. I could uh, highlight a couple of specific things uh, that I find really illuminating in, in this whole realm. One is to think about the progress of uh, humanity uh, in terms of this uh, these kind of base uh, from base metals. It's kind of a, a, a kind of alchemy. So uh, Adam is made from the dust. He's animated by the breath of God. But the ultimate vision of humanity is as a glorified bride uh, surrounded and adorned with gemstones. So there's a kind of trajectory for humanity from dust to uh, diamonds. If you want to, if you want to alliterate, you could, that, that, that would be a, that would be a great sermon, a great sermon title from dust to diamonds. So, but that's, that kind of uh, sets out the trajectory of the human, of human glorification and maturation. And one element of that related element of it is the way that Paul talks about uh, his work in the church in First Corinthians three. This is a passage that uh, Jim comments on uh, in this chapter a little bit, and he, I don't think he cites Augustine, but Augustine says the same basic thing in City of God. Paul is talking about his work as a as as an apostle. He's a wise master worker. He's like a new Bezalel who's been equipped by the Spirit to erect this glorious building. There are various kinds of materials that have gone into building the building. There's haywood and stubble. Um, that have gone into it, there's gold gemstones. And when a fire breaks out, it consumes the uh, useless materials, the haywood and stubble. But that same fire causes the gold to be purified and causes the gemstones to, to shine even brighter. So the point being that uh, the glorification of humanity from dust to gemstone, from dust to diamond is taking place in part through these kind of fiery trials. That's what that's what's happening in part with the history of Israel. As Israel is brought up from Egypt, they go through various kinds of trials. And each of those they go into they go into exile, which is a fiery furnace, but they're being purified and uh, perfected as they go through that. They they're becoming the kind of pure metal, kind of pure gold, the kind of uh, purified and shining, shining gemstones. That they were created to be. It's that. So what what we can uh, what we can gather from this is all this gives a particular viewpoint for thinking about the world around us. You encounter a pebble on the road, uh, a pebble on the sidewalk, uh, and there's something about that that's manifesting God to you, and it it just um, the world becomes uh, a uh, it, the world is just constantly singing the presence of God. But there's also giving us insight into our own lives and the struggles of our lives. Uh, it helps us to see those through new eyes as we're thinking about our lives as a kind of purification and the, the various fiery trials that we experience individually as families, uh, as a purification process, because we're, uh, we're being refined as metals so that we can shine brightly in the new Jerusalem. Or I think what Paul is specifically talking about uh, in 1 Corinthians 3 is the kind of fire that engulfs a church. The implication seems to be that when God wants to test the quality of the building, God starts a fire in a church. And the fire does two things. The fire uh, consumes the haywood and stubble. And if you've only been building with haywood and stubble, then you're in big trouble because then it's going to consume everything. But the same fire that's consuming those that haywood and stubble in your church, if you've been building with glorious materials, with gold and, gold and silver and precious stones, then those are going to be purified through the fire. Uh, I'm sure Jeff could uh, 
could comment on the experience of going through those fiery trials and seeing how seeing how those fires that God himself sets in his church uh, ultimately turn out for the benefit of the church. Well, they do, but it's not evident when it starts. It's, it's trouble. And whenever trouble happens, the first thing we do is think of it as a curse. Uh, and we think of maybe what it is that we've done wrong and how is God punishing us. Uh, and sometimes that's the case. You got to be honest. Some, you know, sometimes we do uh, stupid things, foolish things, sinful things, and God does chastise us, punish us. But then also, as Peter mentioned, there are seasons in the church when uh, these troubles come, uh, not to punish, but to purify. They have a cathartic kind of, of result. And, and usually what that means is, certain people are driven out of the church and certain people who cause division or trouble or stress or, or whatever, uh, or temptation. And then there's peace. And that's a kind of refinement. It's a kind of knocking off the dross. It's, it's maybe cutting the gemstone of the church, the community of the church, so that it um, is able to reflect the light of God's glory a little better. So that's certainly a great way to think about it. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.